from the Gospel of Luke, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good morning. Our gospel text that we're going to dive into today is a, is a very well-traveled text, the road to Emmaus. And uh, as we saw last week, uh, this, this text this morning continues the pattern of Jesus opening the eyes of His disciples uh, to Himself and to His work in the world, which quite literally changes their trajectory and invites them to participate in His work. You'll remember they were leaving Jerusalem, and after encountering Jesus, they realized, I've got work to do. And they moved back and headed uh, to the city. You know, some time ago, I was looking at some items from a Civil War exhibit, and, and don't ask me why, it was, it, but it, it became pretty interesting because I came across a proclamation from uh, Jefferson Davis. You're all familiar with your history, right? Then president of the Confederacy. And it read... Nothing is now needed to render our triumph certain but the exhibition of our own unquestionable resolve, dated April 4, 1865, five days before General Lee is signing his surrender. But imagine that you're a Union soldier and you're reading this proclamation. You know, imagine that you're injured and you're stumbling home from the war. You've witnessed terrible losses. You've been outmaneuvered countless times by General Lee and even lost your family farm to the ravages of war. So you're despondent. You're arguing with your friend about what this means, what this proclamation means, what you could possibly even do next. When you're walking along the road and a gruff old man comes up from behind you, cigar in hand, and he says, you know, I'm heading to uh, a Pumatux courthouse and uh, I wouldn't mind accompanying you on the way. So you're walking there with your friend, and he asks what you're discussing, and before long, as you share you know, your, your stories of loss, he puts up his hand, and he says, you know, hold on one second, I want to I share with you maybe a different perspective on what you're saying, a very different account of the same story. And this man, this mystery man, tells of feints and strategic losses that led to great victory on battlefields you didn't even know existed, revealing war plans that had been laid long ago, now coming to fruition. After a quick me meal, he introduces himself, and he says, you know, I'm General Grant, and uh, it's April 9th that I'm due to receive General Lee's surrender, so I've got to get on the road. Now, if you're that Union soldier or, say, a disciple on the road to Emmaus, what's changed? Well, in one sense, nothing has changed. You're still you, right? The facts are still the facts. The outcome hasn't changed, it's been decided. But in a deeper, fuller sense, for you, everything has changed. The world isn't what you thought it was, and neither are you. This morning, I'd like to use our time to look into exactly what this encounter with the risen Lord meant for the people of God, both for those disciples and for us. And I've got three points for today, and we've got some alliteration going. So here we go. You ready for my three points? the patterns of God, the plan of God, and the people of God. So we've got patterns of God, plan of God, and people of God. Start with point one, the patterns of God. 
One of the most fascinating rediscoveries of modern psychology, and I say rediscoveries because most of the time in that field we're always just you know, relearning what we've known for a long time. But one of these fascinating rediscoveries is just how wired we are as a people to seek out patterns. It's ingrained in us to seek out patterns and to derive meaning from them. If you listen to a few bars of music, you may be able to anticipate the melody. You spend enough time with someone, and you can probably finish their sentences, can't you? Finish enough sentences for your, pal for your spouse, and you discover that you probably shouldn't do that anymore. Right? There's a pattern there, too. We are a pattern-discovering people, finding things like the Fibonacci sequence, numbers that are repeated throughout nature from pineapples to pine cones to animal horns. And that's because we ourselves are patterned after a pattern-making God. And this process of discovery that we readily bring to the world around us is a way that God has invited us to know Him. And it's the way that Jesus went about revealing himself to the disciples on the roads to Emmaus, pointing out the patterns of God's work. In our gospel that we just read, it says that beginning with Moses and the prophets, what we'd call the Old Testament, Jesus described how it all pointed to him. Which, by the way, if you could attend one Bible study in history, wouldn't that be the one? Jesus comes in and like, hey, let's look through this stuff together. I'm going to show you where I am in all these pages. I mean, that's, I don't know, maybe I'm Bible nerd. That's exciting to me. Uh, but, but by the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, he's not just saying, hey, remember those 48 messianic prophecies that I perfectly fulfilled? You know, you guys picking up on that? No, he's doing more than that. He's saying that the pattern of Jesus' own life and death and resurrection, or what we might call the type of those things, is on every page. And when you begin to look into it, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to give you just a few examples, but, but just a matter, because I, you know, I could keep you for four hours. I'm that excited. Um, I won't do it. But just, just, I'm, just a few examples. Imagine this conversation that Jesus is happening with, you know, having with them. Jesus might say, for example, so you remember on the Day of Atonement, as part of that ritual you would do on that day, how you would cast your sins onto this ritual goat, the scapegoat, and you would tie a scarlet cord around its neck, and you would, sorry goat, spit on it, and you'd hit it with reeds and chase it outside of the city, representative of taking your sins from you outside of the city. You remember that whole thing? Yeah? Okay. So what color cloak was wrapped around Jesus' neck? When they spat on Jesus, and they hit him with something. What is it they hit him with? Reeds, right? And where was Jesus crucified? Was he not cast out of the city? Just as that goat. And you could imagine some connections starting to form, right? Or how about this one? How about the other goat? The one who was sacrificed and whose blood was used to cleanse the temple from the taint of sin so that a holy God could dwell with his people. What about that one? Do you see any connections there? How about, you remember when you guys were getting attacked by snakes in the wilderness uh, under Moses, and he had to fashion this, this bronze um, snake that he lifted up, and everybody who looked up at this would be saved. Do you see the connections there with Jesus on the cross? All types, all shadows, all patterns pointed to Jesus. Jesus himself said this. He wasn't shy about it. In John's gospel, Jesus plainly said, 
You know, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they who bear witness about me. And what happens is when we bring together these types in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, we get a greater understanding of why he had to suffer, why this seeming defeat was actually a great victory. Which brings us to our second point, the plan of God. Let's look back at our text. The disciples on the road to Emma- are on the road to Emmaus. And if you don't know the history of Emmaus, I won't give you the whole thing. But it was a historic battle site. And it was a historic battle site for the Jews. And if we're going to keep this civil war metaphor going, it was their Gettysburg. It was a turning point in their war against foreign oppressors and occupiers. It was a site of one of their last significant victories before the Romans took control. This is what victory looks like. Not suffering and death by torture on a cross, right? But, but victory on the battlefield, military victory. And they could be forgiven for thinking that, right? I mean, after all, when we look at p- patterns of suffering in our own lives, we don't always immediately see how that could, be necess- how that could necessarily lead to victory, right? Our first response to suffering that we see is, why me? How could this happen? What could possibly come of this? And that's a very natural reaction. But then you start looking at your kids. Well, weren't they born of blood and suffering? Maybe you look at your marriage, forged by, what would we say, blood, sweat, and tears, right? Or achievements requiring immense sacrifice. It doesn't take much to discover God's pattern that anything worth having is worth suffering to attain, and at times will require it. There's a pattern built into all of God's creation that He reveals to us in Jesus. And this is the pattern that we see in the Old Testament and how God's victory unfolds. As I said, a holy God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful people. We've discussed holiness before, right? It's like light shining on shadows. Shadows disappear, cannot exist. So God put a plan in place to purify the Israelites when He came to them and dwelt in the temple once a year on this Day of Atonement. And this is what He did. He gave them a plan to cast their communal sins onto the scapegoat and send it away. Then He gave them a plan that the blood of the other goat would cover the stain of sin and death that was in the temple so He could dwell with them one day a year. But it's the ritual equivalent of attaching, uh, what, the bumper of your car with duct tape? Is that a long-term solution? Is that going to be very, is that going to save you, right, in an accident? No, it's not. And on top of that, God wasn't content with these yearly visitation rites that He had. He wanted to dwell with His kids. So we come to the fulfillment of God's plan, after which all the ritual of the Old Testament is patterned. No more lambs, no more goats. Instead, Jesus would bear our sins into exile, cast out of the city to die, and it would be the lifeblood of Jesus that would remove from us the stench of death and purify us, so that, as Paul tells us, I mean, it's right there in Scripture, we could become the temples of the Holy Spirit, cleansed so that God could dwell in us. So what does that mean for us, though? Like, what does that mean for us? That brings us to our third point, the people of God. I mentioned that having all these 
Old Testament references to Jesus revealed would be like the greatest Bible study of all time. It'd be fascinating. But that isn't the point. God reveals these patterns to us so that we might be changed and actually participate in them. And here's what I mean. I'm going to use an example from counseling. You all know that I've been um, pursuing counseling as part of the future work of Trinity, right? I'm sitting across from people, and, and um, you know, we'll see what God has in store for us here uh, as that comes to fruition. But now's not the time. But one thing that I've learned as I, as I sit in these rooms, I sit across from people, is, is that while I'm listening to a client and I'm empathizing with their story and I'm, I'm trying to sit in it with them, I'm also watching for patterns of behavior from the client's past that are being played out in the present to their detriment. Despite what you believe, a counselor is not interested in your past unless there are things that are continually playing out in the present. You all track with me on that. So, so for example, I might sit across from one man and I might say, you know, you mentioned a few sessions ago how your dad would raise his voice to cow you into silence. And I'm wondering if the anger that you just displayed is trying to achieve the same purpose. There's a pattern. Or how about this one? I notice that when your wife gets emotional, you shut down. It reminds me of your own mother's intense emotions that you shared with me, and that how as a kid you were overwhelmed by them and didn't know what to do. And I'm wondering if this pattern is playing out right now, or instead of being able to engage and empathize, you're shutting down. Now, in these situations in the room, is that dad or that mom bodily present? No. But their presence is felt by the clients, catch this, participation in the same patterns. We call this addressing the person who isn't in the room. Now, these things aren't always negative, right? For example, a pattern in my own life, my father would always, and I mean always, come and reconcile with us kids immediately after an argument. And despite my many faults as a parent, there's one thing I didn't have to work to develop, which was this pattern that was stilled in me so that whenever my sons and I have a disagreement, I immediately knock on the door and crouch down with my buddies and I seek reconciliation. That's nothing that I did, but when that's happening, there's a sense in which my participation in this pattern is bringing my father into the room with me. You all track with me when I say that? The things that are instilled in us that we carry. But even this is a mere type, a mere shadow of how God is present with us when we participate in His saving work and the patterns that He's laid out for us. God is our Father, and we carry His patterns with us. And we see some of these patterns in the stories of Jesus that was being unfolded on the road. The patterns that we carry forward of victory through suffering, of taking on the debts of others through forgiveness, of humbling ourselves just as Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and dying for our sake. These are just some of the patterns that as the people of God we are called to participate in. Be holy, as our epistle says that we just heard from 1 Peter. Why? Well, because as God says, I am holy. And we pattern our lives after His. And as we participate in His work, He is really and truly present with us, not in a shadow or a memory as with my examples, but truly and present with us. And we bear Him forth into the world. You know, even now in this room, in this space, at this time, we are participating in a pattern of Scripture.
We are walking alongside the disciples on the road to Emmaus as God is revealing himself to us through his word. And in a few minutes, we will be breaking bread with him and, God willing, have our eyes opened to his presence among us this very day. So as we continue with the Mass, as we seek his presence amongst us, let me further encourage us to take that presence out into the world with us, that our lives might pattern themselves after his, and in doing so, we carry him forth into the world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you have fashioned us after the image of yourself, that you have created us to repent of our sins, to be cleaned, to be cleansed so that you can dwell with us, and that you have laid out the pattern that our lives are to follow, that all of your commandments, all of your decrees, all of the morals as we would call them in Scripture, base themselves in the life that you have demonstrated to us. So, God, as we go out into the world, I pray that you would incline our hearts to pattern ourselves after you, that we engage with those whom you've called us to love, God, that you would be really and truly present with us, and that you would open our eyes to your presence. In your Son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.